Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. And let's begin by reading this passage together. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. One of the last courses that I took in seminary uh, was a pastoral ministry course led by one of the pastors who had served at Grace Community Church for a number of years. Uh, this man was highly respected on campus, not only for his biblical fidelity, but I think even more so for his pastoral heart. I loved sitting in this man's class and watching the warmth of his soul uh, both towards Christ and towards people, spill out from week to week as he discussed how to do pastoral ministry with us. At the time, he was actually in the candidating process. He had decided to leave Grace Church and head up his own ministry, and he was doing this in addition to his normal responsibilities at Grace. And this meant that a lot of times class was probably a little less structured than what you might expect. Uh, but I don't think that meant it was any less interesting. If anything, I think I enjoyed it more because he wasn't following some set agenda from week to week. He was just talking life and ministry. And what came out in those classes was really the overflow of his heart. Well, one week, I, I don't remember how, uh, he started talking about family, about children specifically, and how he tried to shepherd his own children as he was engaged in the rigors of pastoral ministry. And in the course of that discussion, he brought up the talk. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I believe a question was raised, something like, when do you think it's a good time to explain sex to your children? That might have been the context. I don't exactly recall. Honestly, I don't remember, even remember if a question was asked but regardless, I remember his answer. He was talking about how it was important to talk to your kids about this subject early. And he said, I remember one day one of my sons came home from baseball practice. And he asked me, uh, Dad, what's sex? And I asked him, why do you want to know, son? Because I thought a little strange for him to ask me this question after baseball practice. And he said, well, because Billy from the baseball team told me he was going to 
tell me all about it next week at practice. And he said, I knew right then that my son and I needed to have a talk that week because someone was going to tell him about sex, and I sure didn't want it to be Billy. That sentiment more or less sums up my feelings about this morning's passage. The subject of this morning's text is sex. To be more specific, it's what sex between a husband and wife should look like from a Christian perspective. How the Christian should think about their sexual relationship with their spouse. I know that that can seem like sort of an awkward conversation to have in public and perhaps most especially in church. Sex, of course, is a very intimate thing. Biblically speaking, it is perhaps the most intimate activity that two people can perform together. After all, according to God, it's something we're supposed to share with only one other person, and that's our spouse. Meaning we understand instinctively that this is a very private matter, and because of this, it can seem awkward or even wrong to talk publicly about sex. On the whole, I don't think this attitude is necessarily bad. I think it's very good, actually. It's a very healthy understanding of the subject. Contrary to what society might tell you, you really should be hesitant to speak openly about something as personal and intimate as sex. But here's the thing. Sex is a real thing, meaning it exists, right? It's out there, and it's not going away, at least not this side of heaven. Even more than this, the Scripture tells us that what we do with sex matters to God. Meaning God does have an opinion about sex. We saw this as recently as last week's passage where Paul responds to this notion that sex doesn't matter by saying, essentially, what are you talking about? Christ redeemed your bodies. Of course He cares about how you use them. What we do with sex matters to God. And so we can do either one of two things. Either we can address this topic openly in order to learn how to approach it in a way that's pleasing to God, or we can try to ignore it and hope for the best. I think you can already anticipate some of the problems that come with ignoring this topic. Not only does ignoring a subject naturally lead to ignorance of it, at best, and all the ensuing problems that a couple are bound to encounter as they fumble their way through this issue on their own. But even worse, it can lead to flat-out error. That's because try as we may be to, to, to uh, be discreet about sex, the fact of the matter is that the billies of the world often have no problem sharing their opinions about it. And if the only time the Christian is hearing about sex is when Billy is talking about it, with no pushback to counter his understanding of it, that understanding is bound to take root in their heart in some form or fashion. If you haven't noticed, not only has society's understanding of sex shifted rapidly over the past several years, but the church's understanding seems to be shifting right along with it. It's not shifting quite as fast as what the world is since there are some fairly clear notions about sex outlined in the scripture and it would seem that the church is trying to hold on to that 
Christians can recognize that something about the world's understanding of sex and the Bible's understanding of it don't match up. Still, there has been movement on this issue. More and more Christians are accepting ideas about sex that weren't accepted by Christians in past generations. And if you were to ask me my opinion about why this shift is taking place, and just to be clear, I want to make this clear. This is just my opinion. I don't have any kind of data to back this up. But if you were to ask me why this is happening, I would say that at least one major factor, certainly not the only one, but one major factor is that churches simply haven't taught their congregations about it. Don't get me wrong, they'll definitely respond to the news headlines and they'll bemoan the culture's abandonment of biblical principles. But it's sort of a matter of too little, too late. Not only did the church fail to educate its young people on this subject before the billies of the world got a hold of them, but because of the awkwardness that surrounds this subject, or, or perhaps you could even say because of a general lack of doctrinal depth or concern, or perhaps even out of general apathy about sanctification in general. I mean, really, there are any number of reasons I think you could give, but regardless, the result was that what instruction was given was superficial in nature. Stuff like, you know, the Bible says Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. What I like to call Twitter theology, you know. Sound bites. That's been the general approach to this subject. And the result has been a church that's been ill-equipped to think through and respond to the world's take on this issue. That's left Christians susceptible to the world's influence with regard to their outlook on sex, which in turn has caused the church to conform to the world's thinking on this issue, not God's. This conformity with the world has not only served to undermine the clarity of our message, since it's rather hard to proclaim repentance to a world you resemble. It's rather hard to proclaim the supremacy of Christ while turning to the world for wisdom and instruction on something as basic to human existence as sex. But perhaps just as important, it's causing tremendous pain in the church. I would imagine that you already know that Christians are not immune to divorce. There are even some studies which try to claim that evangelical Christians actually possess a higher divorce rate than those without any kind of religious affiliation. You add to that the fact that conflict over physical intimacy consistently ranks among the top reasons for divorce. And it becomes apparent we can't allow the world to be leading this discussion for the church. We can't allow unbelievers to tell us sex is supposed to work like this in marriage. This is what your expectations should be without any kind of response from the scriptures. There's simply too much at stake here to be silent on this topic or to treat it superficially. As a church, we need to make it a point to speak directly and deeply on this issue. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do here over the next few weeks as we take a look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. I'm going to try to talk to you fairly directly and relatively deeply about the Christian perspective on sex within marriage. Now, to be clear, by this I'm not trying to say that I'm going to speak explicitly about the sexual act, if that's what you're hearing or worrying about. Uh, while there are forms for that kind of discussion, which I would most definitely encourage couples to seek out if they're experiencing problems in the bedroom, I don't think this is one of them. 
It's probably better to speak about that with a pastor or biblical counselor privately if you're wanting to get into those kinds of details because this is a very intimate topic we're discussing here and we really should be discreet in how we approach it. Still, I'm going to try to speak rather plainly and directly about some of the problems that couples really do experience when it comes to physical intimacy and the Bible's response to these problems. Just as a word of warning, I still don't know how I'm going to do all that exactly. Uh, I know we're going to spend at least three weeks uh, on this passage, but just so you know, Paul isn't going to address all the reasons why a couple might struggle in this area, in this text, or even what steps they should take to conform themselves to the standard that he's laying out here. Instead, he's going to lay down some general principles and more or less leave us to pick up the pieces from that. So I don't know if I want to spend three weeks describing those principles and then a fourth trying to add some flesh to them. Or if I want to try to do that in home fellowship groups instead, it's possible. Uh, I may even be able to flesh out those details over the next couple of weeks. I, I don't really know. But what I do know is that I really want us to spend time on this issue because the stakes here are incredibly high. So I don't want to treat this topic superficially. I want to make the most of the time that we spend here while we're on the subject. And with that in mind, I want you to know up front that I'm going to try to deal with this subject as carefully as I can. And I'd ask for your patience and grace as we try to work through this topic together as a congregation. The world tends to send some mixed messages regarding the significance of sex. On the one hand, it's not uncommon to come across a philosophy in our culture which at least implies, if not explicitly says, that people shouldn't be particularly picky about their sexual partners, that it's fine to move from one partner to the next, to the next, since sex is really just a biological function, which we're free to use for our own personal gratification without any kind of long-term commitment. It's not uncommon to come across this philosophy, while at the same time, Coming across another philosophy, sometimes espoused by the very same people, it seems, which claims that sexual assault can be one of the most traumatic experiences a person can go through. That it's something so severe that a person is often permanently scarred by the experience. Biblically speaking, the reality appears to be closer to the second of these two notions than it is the first. While the scripture may differ slightly on this notion that a person is forever scarred by sexual abuse, teaching instead that there is a grace and forgiveness that's found in the gospel which can actually free the abused from having to live a life of perpetual victimhood and powerlessness. At the same time, the Bible affirms the notion that sex is not meaningless. Again, sex is presented as a very intimate activity, an expression of love and affection that should be reserved for one's spouse alone. In fact, as we saw in last week's passage, the Bible would even affirm the idea that in the sexual act, a person is actually giving their partner one of the most precious possessions that they have, and that's their very body. So really, it makes sense that sexual abuse is traumatic. To say that it's traumatic is to only affirm the Scripture's very high view of sex. 
The problem that we encounter as we come to this morning's passage is that sadly this text has sometimes been used to encourage and reinforce various types of sexual abuse in Christian marriage. I'll try to explain what I mean as we work our way through this text, but this has been one of the unfortunate results of the church's superficial treatment of this subject. It's ignored passages like this one, failed to read and apply them carefully, and the result is that not only have some Christians used passages like this one to essentially justify abuse of their spouse, but unfortunately there have been documented cases of well-respected Christian leaders basically encouraging this type of conduct through their misapplication of texts like this one. And I'll tell you the really shameful part of it all is that it's taken secular movements to bring this to light in the church. I'm referring most specifically, of course, to the Me Too movement of recent years. That movement has been incredibly successful in bringing patterns of abuse into the spotlight and giving voice to a portion of our society that's been hurt by these patterns of abuse and tried to speak out about it but were ignored. And in case you're wondering, by that, I don't mean that as some kind of broad endorsement of that movement as a whole. There's a lot of flaws in that movement. I'm just saying that some of their critiques have been valid, and I think this has been one of them. It's managed to reveal how church leaders have sometimes been complicit in patterns of abuse through their superficial treatment of passages like this one. That's clearly shameful. Again, not only does it undermine our message when we fail to properly identify and respond to sin within the church. But, and I think this is the thing that we should really be heartbroken over, what this has shown is that pastors, shepherds, men who have been tasked to watch over and care for God's flock, they have not only dishonored God by commanding what He has not commanded, but they've wounded the sheep in the process with which they've been entrusted. That's shameful. That's the exact opposite of how the church is supposed to act, and I don't want to be any part of that. So I want you to understand right up front that I'm trying to do my best here as we work through this text to be sensitive to the way that this passage has been misapplied while at the same time affirming what Paul says here without apology. Understand, Paul is going to say some things in this passage that are flat-out offensive in today's society. It seems completely backwards. In fact, if I could put it this way, there's a reason why some people have used passages like this one to justify their abuse. And that's because Paul expresses some ideas here about the body that if they're twisted just a little bit, could be seen as authorizing what someone might call abuse. Now, that's not what Paul is saying. But people can read it that way. And what we have to be careful of is not allowing the fear of what people, what our culture might think of us to to push us so far in the other direction that we lose the force of what Paul is saying here. What Paul says here is shocking. But, listen, it can be shocking without necessarily being abuse. And I think that's what we find here, a concept of the marriage bed. That is definitely shocking by cultural standards, but certainly not abusive. And I'm going to try to do what I can to spell all of that out for you while still being sensitive to the ways in which this text can be misapplied. 
So like I said, the subject of this morning is sex. It's talking about what sex, this passage is talking about what sex between a husband and wife should look like. And if I could be even more specific, it's talking about the practice of abstinence in marriage. Basically, there are some Christians in Corinth who started to withhold themselves from sexual relations with their spouse. This is not by agreement. It's a decision that they've made unilaterally. The other partner still wants to have sex. Paul's response to all of this is to tell the one who's withholding themselves that they need to stop withholding themselves and engage in sexual relations with their partner. You see this down in verse 7, where Paul issues the command, do not deprive one another except by perhaps agreement for a limited time. Just so you know, that's the moral of this text, so to speak. It's the command that Paul works up to. It's the application that he has in mind. Two, two notable items about this command, by the way. First, the word for deprive here, it's the same word in the Greek as the word defraud back in chapter 6, verse 7. And it implies that there's a kind of right to sexual relationship, that to fail to engage in sex with one's spouse is to wrong the other person, to even take something that belongs to them. Second, this word is what's called the present imperative, and it can be translated as stop depriving. And given what Paul says here in context about the reasons why they shouldn't deprive one another, that's probably the better translation of this verse. So Paul's envisioning a, a pre-existing relationship in which there should be sexual relations going on, and the main thrust of the passage is to issue this command, essentially, stop defrauding your spouse by keeping yourself from them, except by mutual agreement. You can probably guess that's the part that tends to get abused. There's been more than one husband who's told his wife it's her Christian duty to have sex with him even when she may not want to. Just so you understand, that's not Paul's intent in this passage. To give one spouse the spiritual ammunition they need to pressure and coerce the other into sex when they don't want to. That's actually, just so you know, that's actually like the exact opposite of what Paul means here. Now, we'll get there eventually why I say that. But the long and the short of it is that in this passage, Paul is addressing a situation that's not entirely uncommon in marriage. And that's what we sometimes call the dead bedroom. One spouse has pulled away from sexual relationship while the other still wants to have sex. This can create a major problem in a marriage. In fact, as Paul will acknowledge in this very passage, this kind of thing can even push a spouse to what is often listed as the leading cause of divorce, and that's infidelity, adultery. The same thing's going on here. So what kind of counsel does he provide for this kind of conflict? What would he say to the individuals involved in this kind of an impasse? Given some of the questions that can arise out of this text, I think probably the best way to answer this question, given some of the misapplications that have emerged from this passage, is to approach this from two different angles. And that's both from the perspective of the one who wants to abstain from sex and 
the one who wants to engage in it. To look at this from each perspective. And we're going to do this over two weeks, spending a a week on each perspective. But before we tackle either of these perspectives, I want to first spend a week sort of setting up this passage within its own context because I think that this is critical to a proper application of this text. This is a passage, listen, that has some incredibly broad applications. It has a lot to say to the couple who's struggling with sexual incompatibility. And I think it it applies beyond just the concept of the dead bedroom. It really is a tremendously helpful passage in this sense. It applies to so many different areas. It It can guide a couple through a wide array of sexual issues. However, before we get into those applications, I think it's absolutely critical that we first identify the specific situation that Paul is addressing when he writes this text. I think this is where a lot of the the misapplications of this passage come from. They come from failing to recognize that while there are most definitely some universal principles that Paul is working with here, at the same time, we shouldn't take that to mean that he would apply these universal principles in the same way in every relationship. Just so you know, there are all kinds of different situations that can lead a person to withhold themselves from their spouse. It can be something as simple as a general disinterest in sex, what we might call a a low libido. As you might know already, uh, sex drives are not universal. Individuals can most definitely experience different levels of interest in sex. In fact, quite often a person's interest in sex can not only shift from day to day, but from one period of their life to another. This sometimes happens as they age, for instance, meaning a spouse who was once interested in sex may find themselves less and less interested in it over time. Others may be more or less born with that disinterest. In fact, according to what Paul says in this passage, there's good reason to assume that this is how even Paul would describe himself. It doesn't seem as if there's any real struggle for him to control himself sexually, perhaps because the interest just isn't there for him. A spouse might be tempted to withhold themselves for this reason. They just don't find sex that interesting personally. In other instances, the husband or wife might possess a general interest in sex, but something has happened uh, with their spouse relationally that has made them disinterested in sex with that specific person. This is incredibly common in marriage. A couple gets in a fight, and one or both partners pulls away, finding sex with their spouse repulsive. Much more serious and still very common is when it's not even a specific conflict that brings this on. Instead, there's just this general buildup of frustration with the other spouse, perhaps due to some series of conflicts that they're experiencing with each other. Sometimes it's simple as a a lack of communication. But this emotional distance builds up, and over time they find themselves losing interest in physical intimacy with their spouse. In fact, sometimes it's not even as complicated as this. Instead, they just get bored with each other. This is very, very common and probably the source of many an affair. The excitement that was there when the relationship was new and their spouse was this unknown quantity, that excitement begins to fade over time. They stop courting one another. They stop caring about their appearance. For instance, you know, the sweatpants come out, right? They stop making intentional displays of affection for one another. They discover their spouse's gross and annoying habits and they just lose interest. Sex seems boring. Manipulation, actually, can be another reason for withholding. 
Essentially, one spouse may realize that the other spouse possesses a high libido, and so they use sex as a tool to try to control their partner. If they do what he or she wants, then they get sex. If they don't, then it's cut off. Some spouses may withhold out of a fear of rejection, meaning you can sometimes encounter a spouse with a high libido who intentionally holds themselves back from their partner because the spouse is not interested in sex. They've tried to initiate sex only to be repeatedly turned down or made to feel bad for even wanting it, and so they choose to just stop asking instead of consistently face the humiliation of being shot down. Past abuse can be another reason for withholding. It may be that a spouse has experienced some kind of sexual trauma in the past, and so either sex in general or specific types of physical touch can cause them to relive that trauma. And this leads them to hold back because of the pain that sex causes them. But I want you to understand up front, before we jump into the proper application of Paul's counsel here, is that Paul doesn't write this passage in response to any of the reasons I just gave you. The situation that Paul is facing is way different than any of the situations we just covered. In fact, the situation that Paul is facing is really fascinating in the sense that it's a situation that's both very common and uncommon at the same time. Generally speaking, the spouses in this context appear to be withholding themselves because they think that sex is bad. Verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good not for a man, or it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The phrase is literally. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, with this word touch serving as a euphemism for sexual relationship. And as in last week's passage, there's some question about whether or not this phrase should be said in quotation marks or not. Basically, is this a Corinthian saying or is this a Pauline saying? Is Paul the one responding uh, to what they wrote by saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman? However, in this instance, the answer seems to be much, much clearer. This is a Corinthian saying. Uh, quite simply, we don't have any indication anywhere else in the New Testament that Paul would affirm this statement. Quite the opposite, actually. In, in 1 Timothy 4, for instance, he warns against those who forbid marriage, even going so far as to call it the teaching of demons. In fact, later in this same verse, he'll even imply that sexual relationship is a kind of gift from God. So it doesn't make any sense to conclude that this is a Pauline saying, this is a Corinthian one. They've written to Paul telling him, for one reason or another, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. This is the common part of this situation. It's not unusual to encounter individuals who have a high libido, people who like sex, but who still hold back because they've bought into this belief that sex is inherently bad, that there's a sense in which it's always sinful. Essentially, they fall into this very Greek way of thinking that's been passed down to Western society, partly through the influence of St. Augustine in the Catholic Church, that the body is bad. And so sex is basically bad. It's most definitely necessary, but it's somewhat regrettable at the same time. It's something that we should engage in rather reluctantly and perhaps with some sense of shame afterwards. You come across this attitude all the time, don't you? What's uncommon is that in this context, 
the individuals involved don't seem to think that this belief that sex is bad is in and of itself a bad thing. Meaning they're not disappointed by this realization, like what's commonly the case with the person who wrestles with feelings of guilt over sex. Rather, they seem to be taking kind of pleasure in it. They like the fact that sex is bad. How does that work? What's going on here? Well, if I could put it this way, you might remember from last week's message that on the whole, the Greco-Roman culture had adopted a very negative view of the body. I know that may seem strange to say, considering how freely this society participated in all different kinds of sex. Uh, Today, they would probably be seen as a sexually liberated people with a very positive body image. It actually wasn't this way, at least not for everyone in Greco-Roman culture. Not only was there a philosophical history that tended to view the physical world as inferior to the spiritual order, but the fact of the matter is that many Greeks and Romans could recognize the ugliness of this way of thinking. People sometimes forget that the Romans were obsessed with the idea of power and control. Well, that obsession led many to become fascinated with notions of personal virtue and self-control. And what they came to recognize was that mere indulgence in one's physical desires was the exact opposite of that. It was the exact opposite of demonstrating power. There was even this whole philosophical system that developed called Stoicism, which was built around controlling one's passions. And it served as a rival to one of the other major philosophical systems of the time, which was called Epicureanism, which taught that pleasure is the ultimate virtue, the ultimate good to pursue. In fact, what's really interesting about the Epicureans is that although they were technically hedonists, meaning they saw the pursuit of pleasure as the ultimate good, many of them still recognized that excess tended to minimize pleasure instead of maximize it. And so even they also tended to see the cravings of the body as a kind of obstacle to overcome in the pursuit of happiness instead of something to be indulged. Point being, it wasn't uncommon for members of Greco-Roman society to see the body as a bad thing, as something that will be freed from, liberated from, at death. And based on this idea, it also wasn't uncommon to find people who would fall into one of two extremes. Either they would say, the body is junk, so who cares what you do with it? Use it and abuse it. That's the hedonist. Or they would say, the body is corrupt and an obstacle to genuine virtue and happiness. So you must learn to master it. We saw back in chapter 1 that there seems to have been these competing schools of thought that developed in Paul's absence from Corinth, all of which seem to be formed around what they think are the heads of various Christian philosophical schools, each with their own set of strengths and weaknesses. Well, it would seem that this same kind of split developed in Corinth. Everyone in Corinth seems to agree that the body is corrupt and passing away. What they don't seem to agree on is how to respond to this idea. Some are saying the body is being destroyed, so who cares? Use it and abuse it. While others are attempting to say, no, we should instead deny ourselves the pleasures of the physical body. Now, if you recall, in last week's passage, Paul dealt with the former of these two groups. There seems to be this attitude among some in Corinth that sexual sin doesn't really matter as perfectly fine to engage with prostitutes and the like since after all the body is passing away. And you'll remember that Paul responded to this idea in two ways. 
First, he pointed out that Christ has redeemed the body, meaning the whole notion that you shouldn't care what you do with the body because it's passing away is theologically wrong. Christ's resurrection, which Christians will participate in, that demonstrates that God cares what we do with our bodies. And then second, he pointed out that when a person engages in sex with a prostitute, they become one flesh with her, thus submitting their bodies to the service of the prostitute rather than to Christ. This is what really makes sexual immorality so problematic for the Christian in the end. It's not about, you know, are we forgiven of it or not? Will we be rejected by God on the basis of our sexual immorality? No. The problem is that it's taking what's been redeemed by Christ for service to God and through the physical act of sex, place it in service to another. You might see where this is now going as we come down to chapter 7. And we discovered that there are some who have written to Paul saying, verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I can't say this definitively, but I tend to think this is the Pauline camp in Corinth that's saying this. I would think that's why Paul has addressed what he's heard in chapters 5 and 6, while here he addresses a specific statement that's written, been written to him in chapter 7. I would think it's because while the former camp disagrees with Paul, this camp sees Paul as being on their team. So they're writing to Paul, essentially expecting him to agree, to agree with their position. You'll remember that Paul has written to this church relatively recently, uh, before he wrote this letter. We know from chapter 5 that in that letter he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And we know as well that the Corinthians apparently misunderstood Paul's instruction since Paul had to explain in this letter what he meant by it. Well, it would seem that from all of this, the general sentiment in Corinth, considering what Paul is writing, considering that Paul is himself a single man, is that Paul is basically an ascetic when it comes to sex. That he's against it, that he thinks it's generally a bad idea. And so now you have this other group that agrees with what they think Paul teaches. And it's almost like they're asking Paul to jump in on their side and explain to these other people why it's good not to have sexual relations with their own spouse. Can you see this? It's almost like you have these people, and contextually, based off of what we saw in chapter 6, and even the structure of what we see down here in chapter 7, I think it's more likely wives. And they're saying, Paul, can you explain to my husband just why it is I won't have sex with him? Can you explain to him why it's better for us to not have sex? Tell him, Paul, it's good, it's, uh, good for a man not to touch a woman. So here's Paul. He's got this letter from Corinth asking him about this. And he's presumably heard this report of men visiting prostitutes that we discover in chapter 6. And after he's just explained that the men shouldn't do this, since to do that is to take what's been redeemed for service to Christ and place it in service to another. And you can just imagine what this second group is going to be thinking. They're going to be doing fist pumps in their head. They're thinking... Go get them, Paul. Tell them what's up. Tell them that my body belongs to Christ, not to them. 
You see this? These are people who are abstaining. But it's not because they're necessarily experiencing feelings of guilt over sex or because of some sort of personal disinterest or even over feelings of anger or something like that. Rather, they're abstaining from sex because they believe that living in light of eternity, living in light of the resurrection, means abstaining from sex now. It's what theologians sometimes call an overrealized eschatology. Essentially, they're trying to take this future state of affairs in which Christ plainly indicates that sex will not take place, and they're moving that up to the present. They're saying this is how things should be right now. They're saying Jesus says that we'll be like the angels in heaven, that we'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. Paul, you yourself, right? You say that there's no male or female in Christ. So clearly the implication is that sex is basically bad and we shouldn't be doing it. Keep in mind, the Corinthians appear to see themselves as especially spiritual people. This is how at least some of them think that spirituality is expressed. It's expressed by living in light of this future state, this supposedly higher spiritual state that they'll experience after death, not this lower bodily one here on earth. And so what's happening here in verses 1 through 7 is that Paul is realizing, after writing what he just did in chapter 6 about the body to this first group, this group that wants to claim that a sexual immorality is really not such a big deal, he's realizing that now is the appropriate time to deal with this other group that thinks that sex is just generally bad and to set the record straight about what he thinks about these things so they don't twist what he has to say and misapply it in a really, really negative way. It's not entirely unlike what happens with the world and the church today. You know, we say sex is wrong in X, Y, and Z instances and what they hear is sex is wrong, period. That's what Christians think. There's no concept of nuance. That we can think that sex is bad in some instances while thinking it's still very good in others. The same thing has happened with Paul. And so now Paul is going to straighten this out. That's the setting of chapter 7. And before we jump into Paul's response to this situation, I want you to understand all this for two reasons. Both of which have to do with preparing you to encounter what we're going to learn from this text over the next couple of weeks. First, we're going to talk about how this uh, response applies to the spouse withholding sex next week. It's going to be our topic for next week's message. We're going to be talking about the spouse who is withholding sex. We're going to look at it from that perspective. And as we do that, I want to caution you against automatically reading what Paul says or how he says it into any particular context. Again, this isn't to say that these aren't universal principles. They most certainly are. But how they are to apply are probably going to look different from one context to another. If I could put it this way, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that we should admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Meaning we should, we should not adopt a one-size-fits-all approach to sin. We can recognize that someone is withholding themselves from their spouse that that's not good, I think, while at the same time recognizing that it's not being driven by any kind of malice towards their partner. There can be different motives that are pushing that. 
Now, it could be malicious. I think of the one who withholds themselves in order to manipulate their spouse, for instance. And friends, the reality is that they're actually closer to the individuals who would hold this passage over their partner's head in order to coerce sex than what they might like to admit. They're both trying to use sex to get what they want rather than use it as a means of serving the other person. In that instance, what Paul says here might be shared with a tone of admonishment as they're rebuked for their abusive behavior. For the one who withholds out of some kind of past abuse, however, the story is going to be far different. They're not coming from a place of power over their spouse. They're not doing what they're doing in order to harm their spouse. Instead, it's coming out of their own personal hurts. It's coming from a place of weakness. So to say to that person, well, Paul says you need to just get over it and have sex with your spouse anyways, that's coming from a place of extreme insensitivity, which I think we'll see Paul would actually condemn based on this passage. We need to keep this in mind as we're moving through this text. There are some universal principles here, but you can't necessarily apply them in the exact same way from one situation to the next. Context is going to be incredibly important to understanding the way this passage is applied. I particularly want you to keep this in mind next week as we work through Paul's counsel to the withholding spouse. I recognize that there may be individuals in this room who may fit into this category. They're withholding themselves from their spouse. And while Paul is going to explain why you should stop withholding yourself, I don't want you to think that he's saying this in a way that's insensitive to the reasons that you may be holding back. If I could put it this way, this passage probably does have a bit of rebuke in its tone. It's not a strong rebuke, but Paul's definitely correcting an erroneous thought about sex in the church. And I want you to understand that that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul is rebuking you. He's rebuking the Corinthians based off of their reasons for abstaining. Now, that doesn't mean that the principles that he expounds here don't still apply to you. They do. But just realize that if Paul were speaking to you based off of your reasons for withholding, he might say it, perhaps with a tone of encouragement, or even very matter-of-factly, depending on your reasons. And I most especially want you to understand this if you've been a victim of sexual abuse. I've said here this morning that the Me Too movement has offered some valid criticisms to the church, and I've said as well that there's been some flaws in that movement. While I tend to think that one such flaw is that it tends to view uh, the conversation about sex almost exclusively through the lens of victimhood. Now, again, the movement has been helpful because it's helped give voice to those who have been victims of sexual abuse. But that's not true for everyone. Not everyone has experienced that kind of trauma. I need you to understand that. If you've been through some experience of sexual abuse, I need you to understand that in order to grasp the force of what Paul is saying here and not make him out to be some kind of monster in the process. Again, there are many different reasons why a person would choose not to engage in sexual relationship with their spouse. And not all of them come from a position of weakness or powerlessness. In fact, like I said just a moment ago, in some instances, it can actually be an expression of malice, meaning some people understand that their sexuality is something that gives them power over other people. And then they use that power to control and dominate the other person. Listen, this can most especially be the case amongst Christian couples When one party knows that the other party thinks that divorce is wrong, and so they don't feel like they can leave the relationship. 
Sex in that instance can be weaponized by one spouse against the other in order to force their partner to comply with their desires. It's not always coming from a place of weakness or powerlessness. Sometimes people will withhold as an expression of power and control. You need to understand that because otherwise, if all you're doing is looking at this subject of withholding through the lens of someone who's been on the other side of this, as someone who's been hurt or abused through sex, then what Paul is about to say will seem insensitive and even cruel. The reality of the situation is that the reasons that are driving abstinence in this instance are not coming from any kind of personal hurt or trauma. If anything, it's the other way around. Paul's addressing individuals who feel empowered by Paul's teachings to tell their spouse no. These aren't victims that Paul is talking to. They're closer to the individual who's just generally disinterested in sex and tells their partner, I'm not in a good mood right now when they try to initiate. The issue isn't even them being mad at their spouse. It's not that they feel emotionally distant from their spouse. It's more that they're not personally interested in sex while their spouse still is, and they're going, look, I don't know what their problem is. They need to get over it. If anything, they're being callous toward their spouse's sexual desires. They don't see their frustration as anything of their concern. Clearly, this is just sin, they're thinking. If they were only more mature, then they wouldn't even want sex. Surely, you can see the problem with that line of thinking, can't you? To see sex as so outside of God's plan that a person is in error for even desiring it? There's no biblical backing to that thought. That's what's going on here at Corinth. The truth is, the particular motives that Paul is facing here are probably closer to the struggles that most couples face than those who have been victimized by sexual or other kinds of emotional or physical abuse. The people here don't hold any kind of malice towards their partner. They're not angry at them or anything like that. It's not that they find their partner repulsive or something like that. They're just not interested. They've lost that desire for one reason or another. If sex happened, okay, whatever, but it's not something they're pushing for. Listen, it's possible to have a frank discussion with these couples about those desires without fear of wounding them. And we need to be able to do that for the sake of their marriage. So if you think your situation is different than that, then I need you to detach what I'm going to say here a little bit from your context, or at least readjust it. I'm not saying the principle doesn't apply to you. It does, but the application might look different. Or if I could put it this way, Paul is not meaning to, apply, to imply that you're an object to be used in what he says in this passage. So if that's what you're hearing, you need to eliminate that thought. It's possible to affirm the principles we're going to cover next week without implying that people are objects. Which actually sort of leads me to my second point. The other reason why I want you to understand the situation that Paul is facing before we get into his application is because I want, you, I want to encourage you to see this subject through a completely different lens than what you may be accustomed to. I want you to really think about this for a moment. The, the Corinthians appear to be so incredibly preoccupied with this idea of applying the, their present in light of their future. They're so preoccupied with it that they're thinking to themselves, what will happen at the return of Christ means I shouldn't engage in sex anymore. I'd gather that's a pretty different line of thinking than what we're accustomed to. I doubt many of us would ever consider the possibility 
that maybe the resurrection means that I should refrain from sex with my spouse. But that's what at least some of the Corinthians seem to be thinking. And just so you know, it's not just with respect to, to sex that they're thinking this. This is going to be a theme that extends throughout the whole of chapter 7 um, as Paul touches on everything from the marriage bed to divorce to betrothal. He's going to explain how the concept of marriage in all its different situations and phases should be understood in the light of the coming of Christ. When Paul gets to the matter of divorce, for instance, we'll see that the Corinthians are approaching this issue from a completely different angle than what's common in the church today. You know, most people today, they want to know, am I allowed to divorce my spouse? Do I get to divorce my spouse? You know what the question the Corinthians are asking is? They're wanting to know, should I? Like, am I supposed to divorce my spouse? Does being a Christian mean that I shouldn't be married anymore? That's a pretty different way of looking at this issue, isn't it? I think most of the times we tend to look at issues like these simply from the basis of what best serves my interest. What the Corinthians seem to be asking, as, as twisted as some of their conclusions may be, is still, what best serves the interest of Christ? They're trying to live in light of what they've become in Christ. At least some of them are. Again, I don't know that we can say that this is uniform. Paul has to remind at least some of them that they needed to live in light of this reality back in chapter 6. But even amongst this group, their problem seems to lie in this failure to recognize what will take place in the future. It emerges from their theological ignorance more than it does from any kind of disregard for Christ. They don't realize that they'll judge angels, and so they sue each other. They don't realize that Christ has redeemed their bodies, and so they visit prostitutes. Even the man living with his stepmother, they appear to be boasting over this as if this somehow honored Christ. The truth is, as twisted as some of the Corinthians' applications are, the motives that are driving them really aren't that bad. Truth be told, some of them are very good, probably even better than the motives that we so often tend to have when we address these very same issues. Like, believe it or not, these people really are trying to live in light of the gospel doesn't mean they're without sin. There's lots of sin in this church. A lot of this sin is rooted in pride. They deserve the admonishment that Paul issues throughout this letter. They're incredibly immature, but still their affection for Christ seems to be incredibly sincere. I think if you fail to recognize that, then you're going to struggle to see how what Paul is saying here makes any sense. The Corinthians are operating on a completely different wavelength than most people are. They have a different set of priorities than the world. They're attempting to live quite literally as if they, as if they already have one foot in heaven. <laughs> Forget about the world. I don't know a lot of Christians who think this way. Well, understand, Paul's answer is addressed to a people who thinks like that, whose priorities are shaped by that kind of thinking. If I could put it this way, do you remember how Paul said in chapter 2 that he teaches a wisdom that's been given by the Spirit, which a natural person does not accept since they can't understand it because it's spiritually discerned? That's really what we're dealing with here in this passage. For Paul's instructions to make sense here, for you to hear this and say to yourself, yeah, I get that, that makes sense, I want to do that. You have to have a heart that's been so transformed by the gospel that it's your, transformed your priorities, what you want in life, even how you think about the world, how you think about yourself and other people. It's turned all of that upside down. 
going to try to explain more what I mean as we dig into Paul's counsel next week. But I just want to warn you right now, you can't look at this topic from the same perspective that the world does and not be offended by what Paul says. It's highly offensive if you think according to the world's way of thinking. But if your mind has been transformed by the gospel, then this is going to make absolute perfect sense. And I think it's going to be incredibly helpful. So that's our setup. And I apologize for taking a whole week just to set up the text. But like I've said, this is an incredibly important topic. And unfortunately, it's one that has already been addressed by the world. I can't ignore that. Billy has already talked to you about this stuff. I can't ignore that. Because I know what I say may be heard in light of his take on these issues. And that carries the potential to shade our entire interaction over this text. So as unfortunate as, as it may be, I think this has been a very necessary preview of this passage. Next week, however, we're going to drop the setup and dig in, beginning once again with the withholding spouse. We're going to take a look at this topic from that perspective exclusively, and then the next week we'll take another look at it from the perspective of the sexually eager spouse. My hope is that if this is something that you're wrestling with as a couple, or even if it's not, maybe you're single, either way, I think it's going to frame Paul's general outlook on sex, and I hope that you'll find this to be incredibly helpful. Let's close with a word of prayer.